Hey friends, Dan here, welcoming you to another episode of the Dynamic Nonprofit Podcast. And on this show, if you've been a, a longtime listener, you know that we talk a lot about uh, all kinds of issues across the fundraising landscape. We talk a lot about integrated fundraising, obviously bringing our fundraising channels together and having them be more cohesive. We talk about bigger picture issues, lots of strategy, leadership concerns, anything that can fall under the banner of unsiloed fundraising and helping to deliver a better donor experience and raise more money for great nonprofits that are out there doing such incredible work. But my favorite type of conversation, I have to admit, uh, are the tactical ones, the ones where we talk about A-B tests, sometimes very simple A-B tests that over time can exponentially increase the performance of your fundraising. And that's why I'm so excited for today's conversation with Jay Schwedelson. If you're familiar with Jay's work, if you were at the multi-channel minicon and you saw him in person last fall, you know you're in for a real treat. But this is a must listen for anybody who works in email fundraising. If you want to hear uh, a bunch of email hacks that chances are you probably are not applying. Um, I'm, I'm almost certain that there's something uh, here for everyone to learn um, that you may be overlooking, um, sometimes just because it's of, of its simplicity or that it's counterintuitive. We talk about things as basic as send times for emails, uh, how much email is actually sent out on the hour and how just um, delaying your send time by a couple minutes can make a difference. We talk a lot about subject lines, why open rates still matter, emojis, how effective they are at boosting opens and why nonprofits don't utilize them more often. And we, we also talk about LinkedIn newsletters uh, towards the end of the conversation. And that I think is one of the more exciting things on the horizons for nonprofits and marketers of all types that is just uh, being heavily underutilized today. So just a very interesting tactical perspective. Uh, the thing that's so fascinating about Jay is that his background is in direct mail and over the years has migrated towards email. So that combi combined perspective is uh, something that's really interesting. And uh, we get into some of that as well. But it's just a, a really fascinating conversation that I think you'll enjoy and get a lot of tactical advice out of. And um, I hope you enjoy it. And if you do get some value out of it, please rate and review the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. It is the very best way to support our mission to advocate for an unsiloed approach to fundraising. And I certainly appreciate it. But here's my conversation with Jay. Enjoy it. Have a great day. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. We're excited to have you. Excited to be here. This is going to be fun uh, and uh, appreciate the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have a lot going on. And um, we, of course, we want to get into the email hacks because I, I love the creativity behind uh, some of the things that you talk about with uh, email optimization. And a lot of them are counterintuitive, which are some of my favorite tips. But uh, first, we'd like to get to know a little bit about you. So if you wouldn't mind, would you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get into this great industry and end up where you are today with uh, founding subjectlines.com? You're CEO at Outcome Media and founder of Guru Events. So you have a lot going on. Tell us about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I grew up uh, in this industry from the direct mail world uh, in, in in the list side of things was a called a list broker for a real long time in the direct mail list broker. Um, on all sides of it, uh, business to business, consumer, nonprofit, all of that. And then coming out of that, um, pretty early on, I felt that email was going to be really important. This is in the kind of the, the late nineties. And so I pivoted, I still do a lot of direct mail stuff, but, um, pivoted my agency outcome media to also get heavily involved with, with email. And, um, on behalf of our clients, we'll do about 6 billion email messages a year everything from nonprofits to regular marketers to agencies we handle all sorts of email distribution and so that agency doesn't just do email it does direct mail does podcast advertising does all sorts of stuff help marketers uh, but along the way we've we've tried to also make things available for the industry to for no for no purpose we're not trying to drive leads for ourselves or anything like that we just want to put out information and so we created a website a long time ago called subjectline.com that marketers go to for free and they can put their subject line in and it gives them a score and how good or bad it is with all the data we have. It also rewrites it now using AI 
So subjectline.com has been really cool for marketers. We've checked about 15 million subject lines there. And that's a free resource. And then also now we've put on really large scale virtual marketing conferences. We have one about direct mail called Delivered Conference, which is free. And then we have the world's largest email event called Guru Conference, which is a virtual event that had 20,000 marketers last year, which is also free. And nonprofits are involved with all of these things that we do. It's at the core of what we're doing. So we just like to share what we know that's working, what's not working, and you know all sorts of stuff. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I'm also a list broker. I've been in the industry for 17 years, and I feel very fortunate that I got to dabble on both sides of the industry during, at that time, what was still kind of the early days of email. And I'm curious, how has that informed your perspective, having that direct mail background and then gravitating towards email as it was an up-and-coming medium? You know, the, the real reason that email got me excited is that direct, I love direct mail. I love uh, The thing that got me excited in general about direct response marketing is that, okay, I spent a dollar and how much did I get after I spent that dollar, right? This idea that you, you could actually measure all of it, that got me very excited. But the thing with direct mail that's always been hard, that there's a barrier to entry, right? I don't have to tell anybody listening that it costs money to, uh, the paper costs money, the postage costs money, the list costs money, everything costs money. So to do really lots of different testing, you got to take a leap of faith and and, and uh, testing budgets are smaller than they used to be, right? So in the world of email though, all those barriers to, to entry don't exist, right? You could test stuff, you could put stuff out there and if it doesn't go well, okay, on to the next, right? So I love this idea. We can still do all the same principles of direct marketing that we all really love from the direct mail world. But without the limitations of, I don't have the budget to test that, or what if it doesn't produce the results? So it's a little bit more of a um, open-minded testing environment, which is what got me excited. But it's the roots of traditional direct marketing and direct mail that really are the driving force behind uh, how you're thinking about going to market. And how do you see the two mediums playing off of each other right now? Do you see messaging that works in email that then could be adapted to direct mail or vice versa? Or um, how, how are those two mediums coexisting in terms of how consumers are using them, the types of messages they respond to? You know, I think one thing, and you talk about being uh, counterintuitive, I think one of the things that marketers have gotten wrong since the dawn of email, especially those that come out of the direct mail world, is that there's a huge benefit to doing multi-channel, uh, where you send out a direct mail piece, you follow up by an email, and you're going to see this, you know, exponential increase in response because you, you know, somebody got both of them, um, and that's something I've never really believed to be true. Um, I think in a lot of cases, email, uh, and this sounds ridiculous considering I'm a big fan of email, but email gets a lot of credit for ROI. It doesn't always deserve. And what I mean by that is it really is the last touch attribution point, right? So you could be running radio ads and TV ads and direct mail and all this stuff. And then they finally get the email and they respond, right? And, and but I'll get assigned to the email, which is why there's all these crazy numbers out there that, you know, for every email address you get, it's $36 ROI, which to me is nonsense. Um, but I always share that because, you know, yes, email and direct mail, there is a lot of overlap in terms of, uh, you know, copywriting, in terms of what offers may or may not work, you know, the subject line being kind of like the outer envelope of the direct mail piece. There's a lot of basic principles, I think, that the two kind of really do intersect on. But in terms of the two channels having a big impact on each other, I don't think it's as fruitful as a lot of marketers have always made it believed to be. Now, that's some good advice about not doing multi-channel for the sake of doing multi-channel that in some cases it makes sense, but it's not a guarantee. Um, yeah. Consumers at this point, um, is everybody responsive to everything? I mean, I, I remember my early days in the industry, there was still kind of a mindset of uh, these are email donors or online donors, and these are direct mail donors, and never the two shall cross. And I think things have evolved quite a bit since then. Um, are are there still consumers that lock in on on one particular type of of messaging? You know, I I, I think that certainly some of the older audiences will absolutely skew direct mail responsive more than email responsive. There's no doubt about that. Um, but as we look at net new people, 
the hardest thing you can be for a nonprofit is getting that net new donor, right? Uh, right. That's really, really a hard, hard barrier to, to overcome. And what we see is that uh, a significant portion of the net new donors are coming from uh, online efforts, from, from email efforts. So it really is this delineation of existing donors uh, and the age of those existing donors versus going after that net new. And um, the net new, if you're not really thinking about your email strategy with your net new, then I think you're missing a massive opportunity. Yeah, it's an important distinction to make about yeah. uh, net net new donors. Um, no, th thank you. Appreciate your perspective. I think just having that combined perspective is is fascinating and and still pretty rare. I find to find people that um, know how to operate on both sides, and and I think it does give you a different perspective. So we appreciate you sharing that with us. But let's let's dig into the tips. Um, as you know, nonprofit sector is um, is is very risk adverse by nature. And yes. sometimes that hampers innovation. It prevents us from trying new things. So what kind of things generally are nonprofits not doing with email that they should be looking at? So that's a great question. I think the first thing that nonprofits make the mistake of is they'll say, oh, they think that email, they're just checking the box because they think that email doesn't really do great for them. That's what a lot of nonprofits think. Like, okay, yeah, we, we do our emails, we send them out, but it's not really a primary focus for us because it doesn't really you know, move the dial, right? And that is the overwhelming feeling in the nonprofit sector, that it's like an add-on. It's not a primary channel for a lot of nonprofits. And I, from what we have seen, that's because of the nonprofits aren't necessarily looking at every little thing that you can be doing to squeeze out that performance. And um, they also are being held back by things they think that they can't do or that they shouldn't do, or they get held back by the dreaded unsubscribe, which I think is a big issue for nonprofits and their understanding of what an unsubscribe really is and what it isn't. So in a lot of ways, I think that nonprofits need to almost say, wait a minute, I need to relook at email and understand that this could be one of my core channels and not just something that, yeah, we do that too. And we can get into some of the specifics that I think that the nonprofits are missing out on because there's a lot of them. Yeah, well, let's let's. Uh, I just want to hone in on the, your point yeah. about unsubscribes because uh, you gave a uh, a presentation at the multi-channel minicon last year, and you talked about how unsubscribes are actually a positive. I've never heard right. them framed that way. It made a lot of sense to me. Can can you dig into that a little bit? Why um, why is it actually counterproductive that many nonprofits may um, obsess over the number of unsubscribes or be deterred from doing certain things if they're seeing. Um, readers that are um, unsubscribing from their messaging. Yeah, for sure. So first off, you know, when you send out a direct mail campaign, um, you get maybe get a handful of people saying, take me off your list. Why am I on your list when you do a direct mail? campaign?" But the reason you don't get more is it's very hard to complain if you're upset about a direct mail campaign. You actually have to do something, right? But, and there's no other uh, marketing channel that's easier than email to say, I'm angry. I don't want this anymore. It's just very, very easy to be what I call a keyboard commando, where you hit the reply button and say, you're horrible, take me off your list, you're doing horrible things. So first of all, there's a very, very easy path to anger, okay? Um, but what's really going on is when somebody, if you're doing something right, you're gonna get more unsubscribes. And what do I mean by that? Let's say you listen to this podcast, and we come up with an idea for you about what you should put in your subject line, something you've never tested before, some new subject line idea. And you go, oh, I'm going to try that new subject line idea that Dan and Jay were talking about. And you go ahead and you press send on that email. And you know what? Great news. Your open rate, the percentage of people that opened up your email has now gone a lot higher than it has previously because you tested this new tactic in the subject line. But what really happened is there's a population of people who have been on your list for a really long time. They saw this thing in the subject line that got them interested and they didn't even remember that they were still on your list. They haven't opened up one of your emails in forever, but they opened up because they saw this new subject line thing and they're looking at it like, wait a minute, why am I still on this list? I don't even care about this cause anymore. My relative no longer is afflicted with this thing. I don't have a pet anymore, whatever it is. And I, why am I on this? I don't even remember ever signing up for this. 
and they click unsubscribe. Maybe even they write something like, I should never have been on this. I don't know how I got, you got my name, whatever it is. And you might get a, a big chunk of those after you've tested this new thing in the subject line. But if you step back and say, what really happened? What really happened there is you weren't wallpaper for the first time in a, in a million years. You got a po population of people on your list who uh, haven't been engaging with your stuff to actually engage with it. And when they did, they're like, you know what? This isn't for me. So the unsubscribes occurred because you did something good because simultaneously, you also got a lot of new donors and people to come back and re-engagement because of the subject line thing you did. So oftentimes marketers will equate more unsubscribes with we're doing something bad when it can actually be more unsubscribes because you did something good. Um, and in general, I'm not a fan of uh, letting the loudest voice in the room dictate your marketing efforts. You may get back one unsubscribe that's really mean. How could you ever do this? This this email is illegal. You're a terrible person, a nasty gram, and will circulate within your organization. You'll have a you know have a breakdown over it. And then what do you invariably do? You say we need to send less. Look at this email we got. People are really really upset. When in reality, that person just having a bad day, something set them off, and it's not because you asked them to donate to your nonprofit, right? So unsubscribes, I think, are misunderstood and also misreacted to in a large way. Right. It, so it's a byproduct of generating positive attention that somebody's going to see it and be unhappy and, and unsubscribe. So it's actually yes. a function of you doing something well. And, and it's interesting you should mentioned that about direct mail, because I've seen that in direct mail where um, a lot of decisions at nonprofits are still made based on these anecdotes of people that write in and say, yes. why are you mailing me? Don't ever mail me again. I don't want to hear from you. And almost every time that I've gone and been able to match back um, complaint mail, it almost always over indexes from the most responsive lists. Right, so it's a, right. it's a function. You're doing something well, you're generating attention, and a certain percentage of people are going to react negatively. But uh, it doesn't in itself mean that there's something wrong with the message. But we, we do see that on direct mail side, that a lot of decisions are made based on those anecdotes. And you hear unsubscribes talked about so much, um, it seems maybe too much stock is being put in that metric as measuring whether the, the message is effective or not. Yeah, 100%. And also, I mean, in the nonprofit world, you're always uh, touching on a sensitive nerve, right? For, a lot of times people are donating to a cause because it's near and dear to their heart, right? And so when they get messages, it, set, it can set them off, you know, and for reasons that have nothing to do with the email that you sent. And so I, I just think that it's it, you need to have somewhat thick skin, especially to be a nonprofit marketer. Because you're going to get back people saying, why am I getting this? I shouldn't be getting this. But that's not reflected. That's not what your overall population of people you're marketing to feels. And you just need to kind of toughen up a little bit on that. And you mentioned subject line testing. One of the yeah. other myths that you dispel is that open rates no longer matter because they're right. difficult uh, to measure or their accuracy right. is brought into question. And there's a lot of that a lot of that talking point out there that it's almost don't pay attention to this because the metric isn't accurate. Can you tell us why is it that email uh, open rates still matter and why are they still useful? Yeah, I, this is a pet peeve of mine for sure. So first off, what is the open rate? You send out 100,000 emails, 20,000 people open up your message. You have a 20% open rate uh, on your email. Now, the reality of it is in the last few years, that metric has gotten inflated. It's gotten inflated because Apple changed their iOS, their operating system, where it will automatically cause things to look like they've been opened in your tracking. There's a lot of bots out there. So in general, if you were to go into your tracking report in any email campaign, and it said you sent out 100,000 emails and you had a 20% open rate, it doesn't actually mean that 20,000 people opened your message because it is inflated. Right, it's not an actual number anymore. So a lot of marketers will be like, open rates are relevant because I don't know the real number, which couldn't be further from the truth. What you have to think about in your mind is your open rate has now become a survey, okay, on the marketing tactic that you are testing. Right. So what do I mean by a survey? I mean that let's say you were going to test the subject line. Let's say you're going to test the emoji in the subject line for the first time. You had a hundred thousand people on your list, and fifty thousand people you send it out without an emoji in the subject line, and 50,000 people you send out with the emoji in the subject line. Okay, so the one that you didn't include an emoji got a 25% open rate. 
right? But the one that had an emoji got a 35% open rate. Now, does it mean 35% of the people opened up your message? No, it doesn't. But it absolutely means directionally, the one with the emoji did better than the one without the emoji. So you basically took a survey saying to all the people you're marketing to, which one do you like better, right? And that directional information that you can get coming out of your open rate is crazy valuable. So it's not an absolute metric, it's a directional metric, but it's a directional metric that is a game changer in terms of figuring out what tactics are working and what tactics aren't working. So when markers say to ignore the open rate, I'm like, why? It's really valuable. Right, That's it's fine. essentially it's it's essentially a, a tracking pool. Yeah, it is. Right. That's exactly may, what you, it is. Right. You don't know the accurate, but at least your 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 baselines are the same and if something is generating uh, larger opens, that's still very valuable. So open rates are still worth testing for, even if we don't, even if we're still not question, even if they're questioning their accuracy, they're still worth testing for to try to improve. They're still. And I would add on to that. The most important thing you could do in email marketing is benchmarking yourself. I think a lot of marketers make the mistake is they'll try to find industry averages. What's the industry average? What's the industry click through average or open rate average or any other ridiculous average? That's That doesn't matter. You're your own brand. You have your own population of people you're marketing to. Well, too many variables. What you want to do is benchmark yourself and, and also the different types of emails. What is my opening click rate on my newsletter? What's my opening click rate on my offer, my, my donation solicitation email? What's my opening click rate on an announcement email? And when you benchmark, let's say, your open rate on your newsletter, okay, Every time you hit send, you're trying to beat that open rate. You're like a swimmer or a runner. You're trying to beat yourself. And without knowing that metric, you can't figure out if what you're doing is resonating. So you want to benchmark yourself and then you want to beat yourself. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the emojis. Can you talk about the effectiveness of emojis uh, in terms of boosting open rates? And is this something that is underutilized by by nonprofits that, based on what you're seeing? I think nonprofits uh, underutilize tactics in the subject line might be more than almost any other category of marketer. And I think there's one overarching reason why, and that is nonprofits are holding on to information from 10 to 15 years ago. What I mean by that is if you were to go on Google right now and say, uh, uh, what are the spam trigger words? What are words or things that if I put in my subject line, will cause me to go to the junk folder or the spam folder, you will find a zillion articles today that say, avoid words like free, don't capitalize, avoid question marks and exclamation points, avoid emojis, avoid brackets, avoid all this stuff in the subject line because these these articles will tell you the reason you go to the junk folder, spam folder is because of the content of your subject line or your headline. And that's just not true. That was the case 10, 15 years ago when filtering technology was was very basic, but now you go to the junk folder, spam folder, because of the engagement. How often are people opening, clicking, engaging with your emails? Not because of what you write in the subject line. So I think nonprofit marketers avoid certain words in the subject line because they think it cause you go to the junk. They avoid special characters like a question mark, um, and they certainly avoid emojis and they shouldn't. Emojis do incredibly well. If you look at some of the biggest nonprofit marketers on the planet, they use emojis, right, to stand out. The game is, are emojis ridiculous? A hundred percent, right? But at the end of the day, when someone's doing that social scroll in their inbox, what are you doing in that moment? How do your email stand out and not everybody else's? And that little graphical element at the start of your subject line works. It can increase your open rates by over 20% by including it. And over 95% of all people can see emojis. It renders properly. And when you use an emoji, you always want it to be the first character. That's how you get the most benefit from it because it allows the person to stop for that millisecond and consider the rest of your message. So uh, I'm a big fan of using them. I'm a big fan of doing anything you can to stand out to get that email open. Yeah. Is there some still hesitancy about using emojis because of concern about brand and nonprofits want to portray themselves as being serious and they think that this is almost beneath them or insulting to their donors? Do you think that's that, that's an element in that? Uh, I do, but I think it is not real. I mean, literally, if you look at some of the biggest nonprofits on the planet, they are using 
emojis. They'll use a purple heart, a red heart. They'll use, I mean, just a laundry list of different things, right? I mean, you don't have to use ridiculous emojis, okay? There are emojis that are basically just going to help you to stand out. Let's say you're more conservative in nature. You could use a calendar emoji where you're basically saying, hey, today's the day for whatever. Just because emoji has a stupid name, right? It doesn't mean it's not something you should use. If it was called a business icon, you would give it more attention. You're like, oh, I use business icons in my email, of course, because those work very well. It just has a ridiculous name and your teenage kids probably text them to each other and that's why you avoid them. But that doesn't mean you should because they work. But there's also an element there of, of meeting donors where they are. And, and you know, if you look at the data on on senior populations that have smartphones, I mean, there's grandmothers all over the country that know how to text a poop emoji. Like, it's, <laughs> right. not, it, right. it's, it's not it's it's not it's not what sometimes the perception is, is that this is something for kids or middle schoolers. I mean, right. for better or worse, it's something that everyone uses and understands and knows exactly what it is. Um, but it's still underutilized in email, which is why it stands out and and it's effective. Uh, and I agree, there's there's lots of ways to tastefully use emojis, but it's it's amazing how just a small a small addition like that can make such a big difference in in increasing open rates. Yeah, and you know the other funny thing I always hear all the time is, well, everybody uses emojis now, so if I do it, it won't stand out. And what's interesting about that is way less than five percent of all email uh, uses emojis in the subject line. And so I think sometimes marketers are too close to what it is that we all do. And like we're in our inboxes, we're almost seeing things more than what a reality is that's out there. And so 95% of emails still don't use emojis. So by you using one, you will stand out. I mean, it is a fact. Uh, and there's a million other things on the subject line to stand out. But yeah, that one's a good one. Well, what else do we assume are best practices that may actually be... Uh... Uh, counterproductive for nonprofits emailing their donors? Um, I think that one of the areas that nonprofits don't pay enough attention to is their call to action buttons. Um, and I think it's a game changer. And what I mean by that is, so a lot of times you're sending out your emails, you write some compelling copy, right? And then what do you do? You have a big button in your email that says donate. Okay, it says donate. Now, that word donate is a benefit to you, the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. That is not a benefit to the individual, right? Uh, and the, what people react to in email, especially, is when that call to action button is written in a first person, we see click-through rates rise well over 25% as compared to not. And so, for example, instead of donate, if that same button in your message says, I want to help, or it said, instead of donate, it said, count me in, um, we see uh, click-through rates rise significantly. And it's really just changing your mindset where you're not just going through the motions like we talked about earlier, like I'm just getting the email out. Blah. This is getting in the, the recipient's mind and getting them to be part of the uh, experience. And just by changing kind of the way that you're writing things like your call to action buttons has a massive impact. And it's easy enough to A-B test with, uh, absolutely email in, in a low risk way um, yes for for generally what i find is that fundraisers who are on the ground level that are doing this every day are super excited about ab tests and optimization they, they intuitively get it and where things tend to hit a roadblock is when they have to talk to their supervisor or boards who maybe have a different perception over what email is or, or should be do you have advice for fundraisers who are you know, mid-level or on the ground level that are doing this every day, how do they advance the conversation internally about the importance of testing these seemingly minor elements in their email, but they can have a, a big cumulative impact? Yeah. And I, I, I feel for the, everybody with, with the boards that are involved or really looking at in detail some of the marketing that they're doing, because a lot of chefs in a kitchen um, and usually the makeup of the boards are a little bit more, um, you know, buttoned up in terms of their view on how a brand should be represented. So you, it's it's hard to win them over with just saying, "Come on, we got to try it." The path that we've seen work the best is trying to carve out a small portion of a database, right? So say, okay, I, I'm going to only do this testing in 10% of the database, and then I'm going to come to you and I'm going to show you those metrics, 
And then, you know, if you want to not do them anymore because of whatever, that's on you. But I'm going to show you they're going to work. Um, and, and that's really how I think you can win the day. And the other thing is that if we talking here today shared, you know, 10 different ideas to test, they're not all going to work, right? They're mm -hmm. just not, you know, and I think that, you know, most direct marketers understand that we're like baseball players, right? If you would get a hit three times out of 10 in baseball over your career and you miss seven out of 10 times, you're going to the hall of fame, right? That's how, that's what it means in baseball. You're failing your way to success. It is the same thing in email. It is the same thing in, in direct mail and everything that you're going to have to test a lot, find the winners, and then double down on those winners. But I actually think you're better off, not just because, you know, your higher ups, your board may not want to jump on board and let you do everything you want to do. I think you're just better off testing in small quantities, finding the winners, and then rolling out with those winners, as you would in the direct mail world as well. Just because there's no cost in email doesn't mean that you should abandon your, you know, how you test, basically. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because as a direct mail fundraiser, I was always told that if three out of every 10 of your list tests work, you're going to be doing a good job for growing a program. So sure. I maybe uh, coming from the direct mail side, there's less of that risk aversion. I wonder how much of that is still in there of what if this doesn't work and the fear that comes along with that and how many decisions just aren't being made because of that. But as you said, there's a way to do it manageably where you could test 10% of your file and not everything is going to work. Um, yeah. That's why well, I think one of the problems is, is that, and this is the bane of my existence is that somebody internally will get the email you sent out or a board member will get whatever. And then this is what they'll say. They go, well, I would never respond to this. I don't like getting emails like this. And it is this first person like interjection of feelings that is mind numbing to me because you are not your database. You are not the entire population. You are not representative of everybody on your file. And if you don't test it, then you don't know. So I don't like when people say, well, I don't like it. So I would never do that. Well, okay, then maybe you shouldn't be in marketing. Because that doesn't work. Right, right. And even if something doesn't work, it's it's the applied learnings. And yeah. just because it doesn't work doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. I mean, we Absolutely. saw that. I mean, we this is this is why this is why football teams punt on fourth down. <laughs> the Detroit Lions chose not to do that. Right. That was their strategy the whole season long, but now everyone is saying, Oh, you know, that was the wrong decision. Maybe it and wasn't. Now they're home. Based, now, they're, right. now, they're home. <laughs> <laughs> now they're home. Sometimes right. it doesn't work out. It doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. And as That's long right. as you can apply the learnings from it to make yourself better in the future, uh, I think there's a healthy element of embracing failure with fundraising and, and optimization oh, yeah. testing for sure. 100%. Um, and even besides the EB testing, um, there's a lot of little things that you could do to incrementally improve your program. Uh, one of the things that kind of blew my mind that I never thought about was uh, doing deployments that are not on the hour, apparently yeah. a ridiculous amount of email is still <laughs> sent out on the hour. You don't even think about it, but something like that can, can even make a, a measurable impact, right? Uh, uh, yeah. You know, it reminded me when I first started out and this is a long time ago in direct mail, like a real long time ago. And they don't, it's funny now, I bet you people don't remember that you used to do this. Um, you used to have to reserve a mail date with a list that you were renting. So you would rent a list a direct mail list. And when you rented it from that list manager, you would actually reserve a date. So other mailers couldn't have a hit on that date, which is so ludicrous because the mail doesn't all hit on the same day and it's the dumbest thing in the world. And it kind of, you know, went away, but there was the same idea that uh, you don't want your email showing up at the exact same time as every other promotional email because it just won't do as well. So most marketers don't realize that over 80% of all email is sent out on the hour, because what do we all do? We say, okay, when should we send out the email? Oh, 8 a.m., 10 a.m., 2 p.m. In your life, have you ever said, oh, you know, 8, 11, 2, 15, 11, 22? No, nobody says that. That's weird, right? <laughs> and because of that, when you, the first 10 minutes of every hour, it, your inbox, you don't realize it's just flooded with promotional email. And if you just send out your emails a little bit later, a little late to the party, then you're, you know, send out instead of eight o'clock, send out eight fifteen or eight eleven or whatever. Then your email shows up with more of the one-to-one -one personalized emails, and believe it or not, your open rates on your emails go up about ten to fifteen percent 
just because you didn't send it out on the hour. So this goes back to the original thing of like, you know, nonprofit marketers be like, well, email doesn't really work for us, you know, and they just do it because they have to, where email is a series of a million little things that if you add them up and you really test through all of them, you can see a dramatic shift in your performance. Yeah, I've been doing this long enough that I remember when the best practice advice was to send emails Tuesday through Thursday, right. uh, first thing in the morning, always first thing in the morning. Right, right, and right. what's interesting about that is, is you're just talking about looking where other people aren't. Uh, yes. We see this in the direct mail world too, that the first quarter is still, I mean, I've been doing this 17 years. The first quarter is still a great time to fundraise because a lot of organizations won't do it because the right. assumption is that donors are burnt out. They don't want to be bothered after the new year. Uh, so it's really the same premise. You're just trying to look for where are other people aren't um, aren't sending and how can I fill that void? And is that the reason why weekends can be surprisingly effective? There's still a lot of risk aversion for not using weekends, but what's your feeling about Saturday and Sunday sends? So first of all, I agree with you hundred percent, right? Um, Saturday and Sunday sends can be fantastic. I also think that what marketers do is they look at their metrics a little bit the wrong way. Like they'll look at their metrics like, oh, I sent this out on Thursday. I got a 30% open rate and a 4% click-through rate. I sent it out on Saturday. I only got a 20% open rate and a 2% click-through rate. Oh, Saturday is not good. And the reason that I don't subscribe to that is um, what you would find, let's say you send on a day like Saturday, you're going to find that people that open and click on a Saturday are not the same people that open and click on a Thursday because people interact with their email very, very differently. So this, uh, you'll find that you are probably re-engaging lots of people that have been ignoring your emails during the week by trying the weekend. You're hitting different populations of interest by trying different times and different days. So it's not as, oh, Thursday's better than Saturday because the metrics tell me that. It's the net new population of people that are opening it and engaging with it. And so you almost want to be all over the place so you can cater to all the different ways that people interact with your email. So I'm a huge fan of weekends, nighttime, Sundays, doesn't matter when, because you're always finding new pockets of people to engage. Does it depend on what the message is? Something like, uh, a newsletter, is that better to send during an off time when people have more attention and time available to, um, to, to consume your content? Yeah. I mean, look, it also depends on the audience, you know, that you're going after. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's some, some newsletters that, um, you absolutely makes no sense to send on a Monday morning. Right. I mean, because, you know, your work mode, people aren't thinking about this or thinking about that. Whereas maybe, you know, there are other newsletters that it's spot on to send, you know, Monday morning. So it's really also the audience that you are communicating to. Um, but yeah, it's it, it can be all over the place. But if I would say if there's a day or a time that internally, like we will never do that day and time, that's literally the first thing I would test if I was the new marketing manager at that company, because anything I said you can never do is the thing I want to do. <laughs> that's that's good advice. Yeah. <laughs> Counterintuition. Sometimes it produces Always. the best tests. Yes. Um, on the direct mail side, uh, we saw a, a lot of mailers over the years Um move their print newsletters into email thinking that email is free and we can do this without paying for paper and postage. And the tell there that I like to tell people is it, it, you're very hard pressed to find a nonprofit that hung on to their print newsletter that will do away with it at this point because they realize how valuable that engagement is. So how what is your opinion right now about the importance of email newsletters? And if, you, if you've had a chance to look at this, how do you feel that nonprofits are are using uh, their their email newsletters to engage with donors? So I agree with you 100. That tangible print newsletter for for nonprofits is everything. People hold on to them, they keep them, they'll read them a month later, um, and it is apples. It's not even apples and oranges with your email newsletters. It's apples and garbage cans. It's like two completely different things that have almost no correlation to each other, other than the fact. You don't need to go and do new research to figure out what to put in your email newsletter. You could take some some portion of that newsletter and stick it in your email thing. But email newsletters are a very, very different animal. They are, you know, quick snippets, right? They're of the moment. They're not, email news are not things that people really hold on to for a long time and go back to. They're much more of a, you know, timely information, a lot less words, 
Um, and so email newsletters are insanely valuable, but they are not in replace of your print newsletter and they're not uh, a replication of your print newsletter. And, and that's kind of how you have to always think about it, at least in my opinion. That's that's interesting. And, and is there a way either from the uh, commercial side or, or nonprofit that you've seen um, or a particular type of newsletter that you've seen be effective for engaging readers? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the quick way to win with the newsletters is obviously take the most compelling articles that you have, whatever they are, right? And then you take two or three lines and you maybe it's like a little digest, three or four, not really more than that uh, in, in an email newsletter. And then the, the secret sauce that we're seeing working right now is so let's say the article is about, uh, let's say it's humane society type thing, articles about, oh, new things uh, affecting dogs. I don't know. And then you write two or three lines about what the article is going to be about. But then at the end of those two or three lines, before you put the click through that goes back to the site, because that's what you want to do. I can go back to the site. You put in there something that says two minute read or three minute read right there next to that click through. The management of expectations of how much time somebody needs to invest in the article in your newsletter has been a game changer in terms of overall engagement uh, with people clicking through and reading it because emails and online is everything's faster. So telling people it's only gonna be a two or three minute read has done really, really well. And then the other thing with the email newsletters is the subject line. What you what we have found not, that doesn't work is if you just say the name of your newsletter and the subject line, this is the so-and-so Humane Society newsletter, the 47th edition. That is wallpaper. Nobody cares. No one will open it. But if you put in the subject line the most uh, interesting fact, you know, 71% of dog owners are doing this now, whatever it is, the most interesting fact from your newsletter with no call to action. You're not saying do this or do that. Just the most important fact of that newsletter, we're seeing that drive um, engagement and open rates more than any other tactic for nonprofits and their newsletters. Now, I think the best example of that is a company like Axios. That's yeah, on all their newsletters. Sure. They tell you this is a two minute read, three minute read. Oh, yeah. make, it makes sense because you know how much time you're having to invest if you click on that link. Absolutely. Um, the, the last tactic that I wanted to ask you about, Jay, we appreciate you being uh, so generous with your time oh, yeah. is um, LinkedIn newsletters. Uh, yes. So this is something that I definitely do not see a lot of nonprofits uh, using. Why are LinkedIn newsletters such a, a potent form of engagement? I'm glad you brought it up because I think this is one of the most underutilized things. And I know a lot of people may zone out like, oh, LinkedIn, I'm, I market to consumers. Why would I ever do this, that, or whatever? And man, everyone's sleeping on LinkedIn newsletters. So it's actually interesting. Last week, uh, Microsoft, who, who owns LinkedIn, in their quarterly report, they, as part of their primary thing in their quarterly report, they actually called out LinkedIn newsletters. And they said, our LinkedIn newsletter readership is up 300% year over year. Now, why does that matter? You're like, I don't have a LinkedIn newsletter. What am I supposed to do with that? So the way LinkedIn newsletters work, which most people don't realize, is this. You have, if you're like a decent-sized nonprofit, you may have thousands of people following your company page on LinkedIn. Okay, because LinkedIn has a billion people on it. So let's use a round number and say you have 100,000 people following your company page. You may only have 10,000, you may only have 1,000, but I'll use a round number of 100,000. You have 100,000 people following your nonprofit company page on LinkedIn. And these people care about your nonprofit or else why they wouldn't be following your page, okay? You take whatever newsletter you normally email out. You literally copy it, control C. Then you go on LinkedIn and you click on write an article and there's a little button there that says, this is a newsletter. And when you select this is a newsletter, you open it up and you can paste in the same copy that you put in that when you sent out your regular email newsletter into this first post, this first newsletter from your company page. And then you hit the word publish. When you hit the word publish on that first LinkedIn newsletter, two things, well, three things happen. One is it makes a post. Who cares? It does a post on LinkedIn about the fact that you just published a newsletter. That's irrelevant. This has nothing to do with posting on LinkedIn. But the two other things that it does is, number one, it sends the newsletter out that first time to everybody, okay, who follows your page. That's a win. But the bigger win is it invites every single person that follows your page to subscribe to your LinkedIn newsletter. It is the only thing on planet Earth that beats the social media algorithms because I'm sure all of you have gotten it on LinkedIn, these little invitations that says, do you want to subscribe to so-and-so newsletter? 
That is not because that person or that company or that nonprofit said to ask this person if they'll subscribe. LinkedIn does it automatically. And then what happens is after you publish just one newsletter, even if you never publish another one again, every single time a new person follows your company page, it invites them to subscribe to your newsletter. So we are now seeing, to give you an idea, after you publish your first newsletter on LinkedIn, 30 days later, we're seeing over 25% subscription rate, yes, to your newsletter, which is bananas. And then it just grows and grows and grows from there without you doing anything. It costs you no money. And it's a fantastic way to have more distribution for your newsletter. And the only requirement is you could do it on your company page or you could do it on your personal page. You just need 150 followers or connections. And that is it. And there's less than 70,000 newsletters on LinkedIn, which is why it stands out so much. So I'm a big believer in it and it works really well. I mean, it's, that's the reason why LinkedIn is still effective in general is because there's uh, not a lot of content considering the amount of people that are on there. And Absolutely. we did take your advice uh, oh. at DMAW when you spoke at the Minicon and uh, you, didn't, you didn't know I was going to bring this up, but we didn't have a LinkedIn newsletter. We decided to do that. And currently about half of our followers are subscribed to that newsletter. And oh, now we're cool. thinking about different ways that we can use it. Initially, we were just putting out a calendar of events, but we realized it's a very valuable way to engage people, probably maybe more valuable for those people than than email might be. Um, and uh, we're, we're realizing it, it, it's a really nice tool in the, in the toolkit for engaging followers. So uh, awesome. definitely, yeah, if you take nothing away from this conversation, uh, definitely take Jay up on that, start a LinkedIn newsletter. And based on what you described, even if it's something that you did once and you don't have a full strategy for yeah. it, just getting it out there has value because then when people come and they they follow you, they'll receive an invitation to follow the newsletter as oh, well. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. So um, on one of my LinkedIn pages, so subjectline.com is, is one of our sites and we have a LinkedIn page. And I had, I had we had no plan for what to do with our LinkedIn newsletter, zero. But we knew that, hey, if we publish one, then people start subscribing. And then once we do have a plan, it'll be there, right? So we did that a few months ago. So now we have a zillion people subscribe to this thing. So now we actually have a plan. So all you want to do is you want to publish that first one so it builds up your subscribers. So that way when you're ready, then you can rock and roll. So it's yeah. the weirdest thing, but it, it's, as you mentioned, it works, which is cool. Yeah, and what I like about it is it, it helps uh... – it helps further dispel the notion that LinkedIn is just a place for job searching. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I kind of, when people ask me, I say it's, it's a place where people go for personal enrichment, whether that's a hobby or just an interest of theirs, or maybe it's career related. It's people that want to consume information that are interested on, 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 on getting more educated on a particular topic. It could be any number of things. And the newsletters right. just, just enhances that. Um, I, I, by the way, I could not agree with you more. To me, LinkedIn is the last real social network. And in mm -hmm. some weird way, everybody's very nice on LinkedIn. You rarely get like the negativity that you do on other social platforms. And another stat that I think is really interesting is that uh, only 5% of people on LinkedIn actually share content on LinkedIn. 95% of people are bystanders. They're voyeurs. They're, they're watching everything. And the reason I share that is, to your point, it is so well beyond anything to do with just a job search. It is where you can build your personal brand, where your company page can really get your brand across. And it's got a billion people. So this is everybody now. This is not just professionals. Yeah, I think it's the next great frontier for nonprofits to provide donors with, with value. Um, there's a little bit of a shift there because it's not it's not an ROI platform. It's not a place where you're necessarily going to yeah. go out and put out an ask and have a direct attribution, but uh, it's a very valuable place to uh, engage a very desirable uh, target demographic. Uh, one one last question for you, Jay, a little bit fun. Uh, you had made a, a fantastic point in your session that uh, the Golden Bachelor is an <laughs> epic form of targeted marketing. Uh, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? And are there any other reality shows that you see that do a great job of really honing in on, on their target audience. Well, uh, I watch way too much reality TV. That's the understatement of the year. The Golden Bachelor was a massive success ratings wise. Okay. And now the new season of The Bachelor is out. The regular Bachelor, who this guy Joey is The Bachelor. And it's interesting to me because 
the Bachelor series in general and the Bachelorette, their ratings had been steadily declining over the years. And then they did the Golden Bachelor, what everyone thought was a terrible idea. You know, why would this make any sense? And the irony is um, it did so well that now the new season of The Bachelor, the ratings are up for the first time in like, I don't know, five, 10 years. And I think it's because of The Golden Bachelor. So I'm all in on The Bachelor front. Okay. Um, I do like... Uh, I like all all cooking shows. I think those are fantastic. I don't know why. I like when Gordon Ramsay like yells at people <laughs> and tells them that they're. I never understand though. Like on Kitchen Nightmares, it's the same formula every episode. He goes in and he goes to the kitchen and he finds out how disgusting it is. And he says, "Why is your kitchen so disgusting?" And I'm like, "Dude, if I was going to be on that show, I would clean my kitchen. Like it's the most obvious thing in the world." <laughs> so I don't know. That's off topic, but yeah. Yeah. Um. Lately, my guilty pleasure has been Vanderpump Rules. Oh, which is something. <laughs> Scandalous is uh, a big. Deal. So the problem is Vanderpump Rules. New season started a week ago. I have not watched the first episode yet. So if you ruin it for me, I'll be very upset. Um. I do love Lisa Vanderpump. I actually was thinking about trying to have Lisa Vanderpump speak at one of our events, but I can't really figure out what the correlation. Like, what is the tie-in to a direct mail event and Lisa Vanderpump? But if I figure it out, she'll be there. Oh, that would be epic. Oh, I, I, I hope you're able to put the pieces together. That would be a lot of fun. You would care. Yes. Me and you would care. I don't know if anybody else would care. Oh, and it, during these divisive times, it seems like yes. reality TV does bring us together, which is interesting. There's, there's a role for it. There really, there really is. I didn't, I, I, I didn't get that until a few years ago. I think that the reason reality TV is so great is you watch, you're like, well, at least that's not me. Like, at least... I'm doing this and not that. There's this like, you know, okay, cool. I'm not a total disaster. And that only makes you feel better. <laughs> that's great. But I mean, Golden Bachelor, that's an example of nobody else is doing it. Doesn't mean it's a bad right. idea, right? Absolutely. There's an audience to be had there. That That's great. Absolutely. Well, Jay, as we mentioned, you have a lot going on. Um, tell us if listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? And what are some of the events you have coming up? Sure. So, um, I have a crazy podcast. If you want to check that out, if you want to find out everything going on with me, uh, you can go to my name, jschwedelson.com. My podcast is there. I have a newsletter you can sign up for there. So jschwedelson.com, if you can figure out how to spell it, uh, a lot of stuff going on there. And I would really encourage everybody, there's two events that are 100% free and they're virtual and they're huge. Great place to network as well that everybody might want to check out. One is deliveredconference.com. That is the largest virtual direct mail conference on the planet. Uh, that's coming up in September, but you could register now, deliveredconference.com. And then guruconference.com is our email event, virtual and free. That'll be in October. It is massive. We'll have every big brand there. Last year, Martha Stewart was there. So that's guruconference.com, 100% free. We don't charge for anything for any of these events or any of that stuff. So appreciate you checking it all out. It's not your typical virtual conference. It's a lot of fun. No, you do hot wing challenges, a lot of fun stuff. It's we, uh, we yes, very you're 100% cool. right. We do TikTok dancers. We had hot wing challenges. We had the cast of Love is Blind was there. You know, we try to make it fun. Yeah, well, so uh, we'll link to everything in the show notes. Definitely check out Delivered and uh, the uh, Guru email conference uh, in the fall. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed it. I think the audience got a lot out of it and we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, this is great. And please connect me on LinkedIn. And, and Dan, appreciate you having me. Yeah.